0: Lord, what you tell us in this passage is so amazing. And I pray that this morning you would give us hearts to hear that you have truly empowered us to do every single thing that you call us to do in life as a follower of you. Lord, thank you so much for calling us to the great mission of your glory, for calling us to live for you as the lover of our soul, to live for your pleasure alone, And thank you so much, Lord, for giving us everything that we need to accomplish that. This morning, we ask that you would be glorified as we finish this incredible book, as we finish out the book of Hebrews. Cause this passage to be clear to us. Speak powerfully and effectively from your word through me. Lord, use me as a sinful and totally depraved vessel apart from your grace to proclaim this passage in the most effective manner possible, be glorified in the word itself that's proclaimed, and be glorified by causing each and every one of our hearts in here, in person, and listening to this online to be open to your word and to receive it, to welcome it, to be convicted by it properly, to be encouraged by it properly, and Lord, by your spirit to be moved to live in accordance with it to see all of the incredible equipment that you've given us to fulfill this great mission, to truly feel empowered to accomplish this and then to go out and to do it for your namesake and out of our love for you. Lord, please accomplish this so that you can be magnified in us during this time and in our lives as we ought to be rightly changed by your word. And do this also out of your care for each of us individually and as a church. We know that there is nothing better for us and that there is nothing better for our body than to fulfill the purpose that you've created us for and saved us for and called us to. So all of this, we trust in your spirit to accomplish. We pray that you would work in us to make these things happen as your passage says today. Amen. All right, well, if you're not in Hebrews 13, go ahead and open up there right now. We are at the end of the book of Hebrews. It's been such an incredible study and I, I really love good endings. Um, I'm a Star Wars fan, and uh, if you've been watching the Mandalorian series, you know that the, uh, the show ended, or season two ended this Friday. I'm not going to tell you anything about it, just in case you haven't seen it, but if you know what I'm talking about, it was a, a very satisfying ending, uh, to say the least. Um, if you know the original series, though, uh, the Star Wars series actually had three separate endings. So the original series came out with episodes four, five, and six, and in episode six, uh, you had the, um, which was kind of the original ending of the story, he had the main villain, Darth Vader, actually turning good again because of his, of his son, Luke Skywalker, who become a, a Jedi Master by that point. And uh, when Darth Vader turns good, he overthrows the Emperor, and, uh, and there's a big celebration. That was the original end of the story. Um, but then after uh, Episodes 4, 5, and 6, um, they, uh, uh, George Lucas made the, the prequel trilogy, Episodes 1, 2, and 3. And Episode 3 was kind of like a, another ending in and of itself, um, I remember when I was a kid uh, being really excited to go see that movie. We, I think my, uh, my dad actually took us with um, one or two of our uncles to go see it with some cousins. And I remember looking at either a poster uh, at the movie theater in the store and just being memorized by this, by this photo of, of Darth Vader and, and, uh, and, and the lava behind him. And this was the end of, of, uh, of a series that we had really enjoyed as kids. But if you know, in, in the third movie, in episode three, um, the, uh, the ending's a little bit different. It doesn't end in a, in a big celebration. It doesn't end in victory. Um, it actually ends by showing how Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader and then how the galaxy ends up falling to the Empire. Um, but it also ends by showing how Luke and Leia are born and how uh, Yoda and Obi-Wan successfully go into hiding. And so in other words, all of the things that are there, all of the things that are needed for the good guys to eventually win in the end are present in Episode 3. So everything that's needed for them to be successful in, in their mission uh, is there. All, all, all of the people um, and uh, uh, all, all of the people that they need in order to eventually bring out victories in place. Uh, why am I sharing this with you? Uh, it's not just because I, I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, I'm sharing this with you because the ending that we have here in, in Hebrews 13 is more of an episode three ending than episode six ending. So the ending that we have here doesn't end with uh, all of the powers of darkness being defeated. It instead ends with uh, us being set up with everything that we need in order to be successful in the mission that God has called us to. So it's not time to celebrate just yet. We know we're going to be successful in the end, but what we have here is Luke and Leia and Obi-Wan. In other words, we're fully equipped and set up to accomplish the mission before us, even though we still live in a world that's ruled by the dominions of darkness. Now, what is your mission? It's not necessarily to overthrow an evil galactic empire. Your mission is a glory mission. Your mission is the pleasure of God. It's to live to please him. Remember in Hebrews 12, verse 28, the uh, last verse that kind of leads into this section of commands that we've been working through the last several weeks, the author says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, pleasing worship. So the response to receiving an unshakable kingdom is to offer a pleasing sacrifice to God. That's our task now. And then we all served from the passage last week in Hebrews 13, 16. The author says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are what? Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So in closing his letter, the author gives a benediction. He wishes well for the people that are listening to his word. And he says in verse, verses 20 and 21, he says, may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in, working in us that which is what that which is pleasing in his sight it's the same idea pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen so our mission is to please god and here the author issues a word of blessing he wishes for god's divine equipment on us to accomplish this task he sends us out of the briefing room so to speak. And he says, may God equip you with everything that you need as you go into this battle and to carry out this mission, may he give you all that you need to do this well. Now, we know from other passages that this, that this text isn't just a, a farewell blessing. Other scriptures explicitly state that this is exactly what God does for us. Second um, Peter 1.3, uh, Peter says, his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So in other words, this isn't just a good wish. This is something that God actually does. God equips you with everything you need to please him. God equips you with absolutely everything you need to please him. And by God's grace, that's the, that's the main thing I want you to see today. I really hope that you, that you feel something during the sermon, that, that you're rightly moved. Perhaps for the first time, I hope that you feel truly and deeply empowered to do everything that God has called you to He's called us to do a lot in this book. He calls us to do even more things in his word. But the good news is that he's empowered you and equipped you with absolutely everything you need to do it. And so we're going to look at two points today. First, the equipper. And second, the equipment. Who is it that equips you? And what exactly does he equip you with? So let's look first at the uh, equipper, point one. Uh, You can turn your attention to verse 20 with me. There's a... uh, There's a great line in the second Batman movie with Christian Bale, uh, The Dark Knight, where in the beginning a group of wannabe Batman are trying to fight crime, um, and then the real Batman shows up and he ends up subduing the bad guys, and he later ties up all of the wannabe Batmans too. And uh, as he's getting into his Batmobile, uh, the wannabe Batmans ask him, um, you know, what what makes you different than us? And, uh, And as Batman's climbing into the car, he says, I don't wear hockey pads. Right? In other words... Um, I've got the, the, the right stuff to do this. You're, you're not cut out for this work. You're not equipped for this work. Um, I, didn't get my, uh, I didn't get my gear from Amazon Prime or Walmart. right? Mine came from, uh, from the Applied Sciences Division at Wayne Enterprise. Um, and, and so for you, church, you're on a mission too. God's called you to do a work. Um, are you just a wannabe Christian like these, like these fake Batman, or are you the real thing? The effectiveness of your equipment really depends on who your equipment is comes from. Um, so where did your equipment come from? Who, who's your supplier? Um, who gives you the gear to carry out this work that you're called to? Let me introduce you to your, your, your equipper. Um, look at verse 20 with me. The author of Hebrews says, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you. That's who equips you. It's not Lucius Fox, Batman's armorer. His name is Yahweh. Verse 20 calls him the God of peace. He's the God who gives peace. He's the source of it. God has a patent on it. Peace is designed by God himself. It's, it's uh, formed by his very character and nature. It finds its blueprint in him. And he's the God of the highest quality of peace. So this isn't the, the cheap stuff that breaks easily. We're not talking about peace as in a state of mental tranquility or the absence of conflict between men. What we're talking about here is peace in terms of whole man salvation. True salvation of body and soul. Restoration of everything that we as human beings were created and designed to be. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 echoes this truth. Paul says, "...may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely." And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking here about the salvation of the whole man, body and soul, completely restored to all that we're meant to be. Now, the prototype of this piece is available. In a sense, we have this piece already, and we see that this piece manifests, was fully manifest in Christ's resurrection. He was completely restored physically and spiritually. We get a taste of that now. We experience the spiritual reality now. Um, but that spiritual reality and what we see in Christ is even more so a greater promise of the peace that's to come. That peace will culminate in the end of time when we're fully restored and all things are restored to the way we're meant to be. That's the type of peace um, that, uh, that we see the author talking about here. Now let's look more about how your equipper is described. It says in verse 20, if you look there again, that he is the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant? It wasn't too long ago when we were Exodus, so I hope that this story is still fresh on your mind. Um, remember when uh, we uh, studied Moses crossing the Red Sea with the Israelites, um, where they, uh, the Egyptians, after God had struck them with 10 plagues, and eventually he brings the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, the, uh, the Israelites are backed up, they have their backs against the Red Sea, and, uh, and, they're, and they're crying out um, to, to, to Moses and crying out to God, and, and, uh, and what God does is he, he comes down and he splits the sea in part, and he makes it possible for the Israelites to walk across the sea on dry land to get to the other side, um, but then, of course, when Pharaoh and his men uh, pursue the Israelites through the sea, he traps them in it. He brings the waters back down on them and kills Pharaoh's army. What was salvation for the Israelites became a watery grave for, uh, for Pharaoh's men. Now, if you'll recall, when we studied that passage, uh, in the Hebrew mind, the sea represented, uh, in many ways, as one author said, the death-dealing chaos of God. It represented that um, the, the, they, they uh, the, the sea was, was a very dangerous place. Um, and so for them, crossing through it, um, that was, uh, it, it meant judgment and death for their enemies, but it was the means by which God's people were saved through why am I telling you the story? Well, uh, the author here could be alluding to a passage from Isaiah 63, which harkens back to the Exodus account. In Isaiah 63, verse seven, the prophet Isaiah writes, "God remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? In other words, Moses—he's the shepherds of the, of the flock. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm?" To go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down to the valley, the spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Do you see the connection? So Moses is the shepherd of the flock that God brought up out of the, death, out of the death-dealing chaos of the sea. And Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep who God brought up out of the death-dealing chaos of his judgment. The language means he led him up. He brought him up from a low place to a higher place. It's very redemptive language, actually, and it means that he brought him back from the realm of the dead. I want you to imagine in your mind Moses walking across the bottom of the Red Sea with Israel. He's shepherding God's flock, and on either side of him are watery walls of death that if they were to collapse at them at any moment would surely mean they'd perish. It was a baptism of sorts. They were submerged the bottom of the ocean in a form of death. Typically, the only time you're at the bottom of the sea was if you were dead, right? You didn't, there were no scuba divers back then. If you were down at the ocean floor, it meant that was it for you. They were walking there on the ocean floor and then Moses leads them out They come through with the light on the other side. They make it to dry land, crossing through the walls of death, dealing chaos on either side. And then picture Christ walking through. He's the great ultimate shepherd of God's people. And as he's walking through, he is actually buried and drowned under the wrath of God on the cross. That he is actually submerged in the grave. But as he's buried in the grave, God brings him out. Just as he brought Moses out through the sea, he brings Christ out of the grave, he breaks the seal that the guards have put on the tomb, and the rock is rolled away, and Christ is led out of the waters of judgment of God. But notice that in Isaiah 63, the passage that our author is alluding to, it's not just Moses that's in view. It's not just one man, in other words, walking across the bottom of the sea. It's Moses leading out a flock of people. It's Moses leading out the Israelites across the sea. And as Moses led his flock through the sea, so too does the Lord Jesus lead his flock through the depths of death. Jesus here is described as the great shepherd. I hope this imagery doesn't escape us. I want you to picture Jesus standing there in a field surrounded by his flock, surrounded by his people. See him providing his flock with food and rest. See him making them lie down in green pastures. They're valuable to him, and his flock is helpless without him. See him holding in his hand his shepherd's staff, and with it he leads the sheep, and he defends his flock against foes. See him talking to a sheep. They recognize his voice because he talks to them a lot. They're used to hearing it, and they're directed by the sounds that he makes. See him at night bringing them into safe enclosures, guarding the entryway with himself. See him counting each sheep, as they pass under his hand every morning and every evening to make sure that they're all there and accounted for. See him protecting his flock from thieves and from wild beasts with his staff or maybe even with the sling. And see him picking up the weak sheep, carrying them on his shoulders and tending to the wounded ones. I want you to now picture that shepherd, Christ, leading his flock through the waters of death. See him uniting those sheep to himself and bringing them up out of death with him to newness of life, leaving not one sheep behind. He raises us up from spiritual death now, and he will raise us bodily with him on that last day to live with him forever. John 6, 39 says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, this is Jesus speaking, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He leads a sheep through the waters of death now, bringing us to newness of life now, and he will raise us up on that last day bodily. But before the shepherd comes to life, I want you to picture him sacrificing his life for the sheep. He lays it down first before he takes it up again. His blood is spilled in the field to protect his flock. John 10:11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now going back to our passage, The text says that the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, it's fitting that he calls him Lord since shepherd is also an image used for a king, says that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. The great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Like Moses, our shepherd was brought again from the realm of the dead and he brings us up with him. But for Jesus, it was the death he died for us that he was raised to life from. It was the death he died for us first that he was raised to life again from. Now when the author says, by the blood of the eternal covenant, we may also have uh, here an allusion to another passage, one I'm sure you're all familiar with, Zechariah 9.11. It's the same chapter that prophesies to our Savior King coming on a humble donkey. Verse 11 says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I, God, will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Let me read that again. because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. You are the prisoners. You're trapped in a pit that you can't escape from and that has no water for you to survive. You're going to die from thirst if you stay there. It's a terrible situation. The walls are too high on either side for you to climb out of the pit. And Your life of rebellion against God, your constant living for yourself, has brought his judgment over you. And this is the the punishment. This is the verdict for you. And unless something happens, you're not only going to be there now, but you're going to remain in this waterless pit for all of eternity. But the good news is that you don't have to stay there. This passage says that God has made available a new type of agreement with man. An agreement with man that allows for your penalty to be paid for by someone else. Someone else can shed their blood in your place. Someone else can, can pay your fine, so to speak, so that you can get out of this waterless pit. But that someone is not another sheep. It's not someone like yourself that is sacrificed. It is your great shepherd. It is God himself come down in the flesh who dies for us in your place. What did Jesus say at the Last Supper? Matthew chapter 26 Jesus took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is what? Poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant, the blood of this new agreement, is Jesus' blood. It's poured out for you. And God can pardon the sins of every sheep. He can pardon all of your lustful thoughts, every single lying word, Every covetous desire he can pardon completely because the great shepherd laid his life down for you. He grabbed hold of the cup of God's wrath and drank it completely, every last drop in your place. He was our brother, he was a man like us, God in the flesh, come to shepherd his people, laying down his life for his sheep, setting them free from the waterless pit. And Jesus' resurrection proves that God accepts Jesus' sacrifice. It proves that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable grounds for this new covenant with you. God sees Jesus' sacrifice and he says, that's good enough. That's good enough for them to be freed from their sins, for, for the, the, that you satisfied the demands of my justice against them. I can relate to them, not on the basis of their sin, but on the basis of your sacrificial death. He does so not because... We as a sheep deserve it, but because He, as the God of peace, is so glorified to do so. He does so for all who acknowledge and turn from their straying ways, straying ways as sheep, and trust alone in the great shepherd to save, submitting as sheep to his leading alone. The new agreement that we have with God, as the passage says, is an eternal covenant. So this is an eternal agreement. Unlike the agreement on Mount Sinai through the shepherd Moses, this is an agreement. That will never pass away this is not like a a knife set that is designed to cut well for for five or ten years and then leave you in a place where you have to end up buying a new one it's not a knife set where obsolescence is is part of the product this is like a a cutco knife set with the forever guarantee you're going to be able to use this forever this this agreement is made it's built to last you forever and the content of this eternal agreement is amazing beyond comprehension The prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 37, he says, My servant David shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He will be our God. We will be his people, and he will dwell with us forever in perfect peace. That's the new agreement we have with God, that's the new covenant established on the basis of Christ's sacrificial death for us, which God accepts, and his resurrection proves it. So long story short, your equipper, the one who equips you for your mission, is the God of peace, the one who, as the passage says, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Just as he brought up Moses from the sea with the flock of Israel, so too does he bring Jesus up from the dead with the flock of his church. By what? By what? by the blood of the eternal covenant, accepting the sacrificial death of Jesus as grounds for relating to us as his people. So what does this mean for you? Very simply, it means that this equipper is worthy of all your confidence. This equipper is worthy of all your confidence. If you're looking for equipment to live a life that pleases God, this is the person you have to go to. This God of peace is the sole supplier of life, and forgiveness, and redemption, and righteousness for men. That's, the author, that's who the author of Hebrews goes to. He wishes for your equipment from this God of peace. And it's the same person that we must go to as well. If you want to be truly equipped for this mission, if you don't want to be one of the wannabes wearing hockey pads, this is the God that you have to go to. This is where we go to for equipment. So you've met the equipper. Let's, let's actually take a look at the equipment he supplies you with. Second point, the equipment. In the first Batman movie, Bruce Wayne goes to, to Lucius Fox at Wayne Enterprises, uh, which is where Batman gets his, his gear from, and Lucius takes him down to the bottom of Wayne Tower, and he shows Bruce all of the equipment that he has available to him. And I remember thinking as a kid um, how cool all this stuff was, that he has the, the, the Kevlar utility harness he has the gas-powered grapple gun, uh, Kevlar suit. He puts his hand over the memory cape cloth, and it comes up to, to make a wing that enables him to, to glide. And then eventually he discovers the Batmobile, which is definitely the coolest piece of equipment that, uh, that Batman gets. Um, but when he goes to uh, Lucius Fox, Lucius supplies him with everything Batman needs for his, uh, for his crime-fighting mission. What does the God of Peace equip you with? Verse 21, the author says, May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will. He equips you with everything good that you may do his will. It's not a crime-fighting mission you're on, but your mission is to please God. It's to please God, driven by a grateful heart for receiving an unshakable kingdom, to please God out of your love for him, out of a desire to glorify him, this is your very purpose in life. This is the reason why you're here in this room right now like God created you in the first place, why he created all things, our purpose, of, of the, the very purpose of existence is his glory. It's such an amazing mission that he's called you to. There's, no more, uh, there, there's nothing else worth living for more than this. There's no greater mission that anyone could possibly task with than to glorify God because there's no one more glorious and no one worth pleasing more Than God himself. He is the all-pleasing one. He is the all-glorious one. However, like Batman, what you want to do is impossible without the right gear. You've been called to this mission, but apart from the right equipment, you have no hope of being able to carry this out. But the author here says that God gives you everything you need, or at least he wishes that. The other scriptures confirm that this is exactly what God does. The word here means to make complete, to put into proper condition, and to fully equip. So what does that equipment include? Let's walk around the bottom of the tower and take a look at some of this equipment that God's given us. First, the God of peace equips you with a new heart. He equips you with a new heart. I saw a news report uh, the other day um, uh, on, uh, on Wednesday, uh, December 9th. It was the 35th anniversary of the Utah cardiac transplant program and uh, for those of you who know heart transplants come from donors who uh, who pass away um, on a, on a ventilator um, and are declared brain dead and they're typically given to people that have heart failure that can't be treated or, or cured in any other way um, and because you have to uh, be, because it's uh, you have to die in a very specific way in order to be a heart donor sometimes the waiting list can become uh, very long, and, and there's oftentimes more people in need of of, uh, of hearts than there are donors available. Um, the report uh, interviewed a few different people. One of which was uh, um, was uh, someone named Ixel Flores. Uh, one of the first. Uh, she was one of the first, um, or sorry, she was one of the patients in the program. And the report said, "quote that she received her first of two donor hearts through the program when she was just eight years old." Now Flores, who's older now, said, "quote I knew that somebody had to lose their life for me." to continue to live mine. So my two donors have been my heroes, and I definitely want to live my life so I can honor them every day. Brothers and sisters, you have had massive heart failure. Your heart fails to love God. It fails to live for his pleasure. It fails to live for his glory alone. You suffer cardiac arrest as well, but you've been arrested in the handcuffs of sin. You're spiritually dead, bound in sin. But you, unlike with the physical heart, you don't have to wait on a long waiting list to get a new heart. You can receive a new heart today if you don't already have one. And you need a new heart in order to please God. You can't please God without having a genuine love for him and a desire for his glory. But that's precisely what God equips you with. He equips you with a new heart. He comes in and he cuts out that old, gross, dark, of, that dark heart of stone, with all of its wicked desires, he cuts that out of you and he transplants it with a new heart makes you alive with a heart like Christ, a heart that trusts God and loves God and desires to please God. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Your great shepherd is your hero. He lost his life to make you alive, and you should live to honor him every day. You have the power to do so with the new heart that is beating within you, with the heart of flesh that beats within you. So the simple question is, are you living for him? Are you making the most of the new heart that he's equipped you with? But second, he doesn't only equip you with a new heart. He also equips you with spiritual armor. The God of peace equips you with spiritual armor. Why do you need spiritual armor? It's because we're in a war against enemies who, uh, who, fu- who are fully set on us, failing in our mission. They don't want us to succeed in our mission to please God and to glorify him. Ephesians chapter 6, the uh, apostle Paul calls us to put on the armor of God, Quote: so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Remember, this is an episode three-like ending. The church is set up with everything we need to succeed, but we still live in a world ruled by the dark side. So going back to the bottom of the tower as we continue to, to walk around, we see God pull back a curtain, and he reveals a complete set of spiritual armory, A complete set of spiritual armory that he equips every single Christian with. The Apostle Paul says Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Now, there's so much that could be said about the armor of God. I just want to to comment on the last two. He says that the Word of God, the Word of God is your sword. Many of you are holding a Bible in your palm right now. It's an amazing thing that we have access to the Word of God. But as our sword, the Word of God is the weapon we use on offense. It cuts to the soul of unbelievers. It brings about conviction on their hearts, which the Holy Spirit then uses to cause them to repent and believe. It's also a weapon that we use on defense. We use it as we duel against temptation, the same way Jesus did with Satan himself when he was tempted. The great shepherd, tempted by the devouring lion, pulls out his sword, the sword of the word of God, and it's the same weapon that he gives us to defend ourselves with as well. But not only do we use it on offense and defense, the sword of the word is also used to slay our sinful nature within us, to slay the sinful nature that battles within. Through God's word, as we encounter God, we hear him speak to us personally, we come to know him more. And in knowing him more and growing in our relationship with him, the Holy Spirit transforms our desires. He takes the sword and he puts to death our sinful desires and replaces them with desires that are pleasing to him. But not only does he give us the word, the passage also says that he gives us prayer. And prayer is something that the author of Hebrews picks up on here in, this, in our text from chapter 13 today. The author of Hebrews actually requests that this incredible gift be exercised for his own sake. Look at verses 18 through 19. The author of Hebrews says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, in asking his audience to pray for him, the author of Hebrews is assuming two things here. He's assuming, one, that God actually hears them when they pray, right? That God hears them. And secondly, he assumes that God actually does things as a result of people's prayers. Now, those two assumptions, those two truths are so life-changing if we were, to, if we were to, to get a hold of these two simple truths, I think our lives would look very different than they are today. He believed that their prayers would actually enable him to come more quickly to them, or to be able to come quickly to them. And the reason why he believed that is because their prayers actually could do that. Their prayers did have the power to bring that about because God hears them, and he does things as a result of their prayers. In the prayer furnace this morning, Uh, I was just thinking as as Pastor Kurt was uh, offering up one of the prayer requests for the world, um, I wonder how much more evil exists in the world today because we're not more faithful in praying. How much more evil exists in the world because we don't pray as much as we ought. Pray to him. He hears you and he does things as a result. What untapped power do you possess in just these two pieces of equipment between the word of God, the sword of the word, and the power of prayer? fully and amazingly, incredibly equipped to accomplish every good work that he's given us to do. But lastly, I want you to see one more piece of equipment that God gives us. The God of peace equips you not just with the word, or sorry, not just with, uh, um, not just with spiritual armor, not just with the new heart. The God of peace equips you with an amazing team. He equips you with a band of brothers and sisters. If you look around this room, if you're a, a, a member of this church, God has equipped you with the people that are sitting here right now. And we have an amazing team. See, the the pleasing life that God has called us to live is, as we saw in the community series, it's a communal life. And in order for you to fulfill that, he equips you with a community. He equips you with a community to fulfill the communal mission. As a community, we help each other please God more by watching each other's backs, by ensuring no one gets left behind, and by pushing each other to please him more and more every day. In Hebrews 10, if you'll recall, the author says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God equips us with a team that provokes us to do just that, that provokes us to do good works as well as to encourage us in the faith. But perhaps even more fundamentally than the benefits that we receive from a team, I think God equips us with the team because pleasing God is a team mission. He equips us with the team because we need it in order to fulfill the mission he's given us. It's a team mission. In other words, we don't primarily please God by ourselves. We don't please him by living out an individual mission that he's called us to, even though that is true in a sense too. We primarily please him together as a community. It's like... um, it's, it's like trying to, to, to play football with, uh, with, with, uh, with just one person. Football is a sport that's designed, to play, that's designed to be played by 11 players on each team. Even the best player in the world, even if it's, if it's Tom Brady, if it's the greatest of all time, he would lose to a high school team because one player can't play a team sport by himself. You can't succeed on your own if it's a team mission that you're meant to accomplish. The author uses plural pronouns here. If you look again at your text, It says, equip you, in Greek that's plural you, it's you all, equip you all with everything good that you all may do his work, working in us, plural, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. Now that's certainly true individually, but here the author is speaking to the body. We please God by living together as a team. Each person is gifted in diverse ways, and we all team up together to build each other up and to accomplish the mission that God's given us. On our team, you have linemen, you have a quarterback, you have a running back, you have a wide receiver. All have different skill sets, but are all needed in order to work together to accomplish this mission. In other words, the mission that we have in life is a team sport. We please God inside our community by reflecting him in our communal life and our love and our intimacy with each other. And we also please God outside by taking ground for his kingdom together by together advancing in the world as an unstoppable team that the Bible says not even the very gates of hell will prevail against. So ask yourself, in thinking about this third piece of equipment that God gives us, ask yourself, are you a good member of the team? Are you a good member of the team here at CPBC? The God of peace equips us with absolutely everything we need to accomplish our mission. There's infinitely more things that we could have talked about because he literally says he equips us with everything, every single thing we need. But I've surveyed some of the main equipment for you here because I I want to give you a sense of how truly and deeply empowered you are. You're more empowered to accomplish this mission than you can possibly begin to imagine. Yet if that's not enough, God tells us here in this passage that not only does he equip us for this mission, but that he himself is the one that causes you to put your equipment to use and to carry out your mission. Verse 21, look at it with me. Uh, The author says, May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And then he says, Either while working in us or for the purpose of working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. God works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that God, quote, works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's an amazing thought. I hope you get this. God doesn't just control your actions. God's in control of your very desires. He's in control of the will that you have that leads you to do what you do and to say the things that you say. Your heart is like a, a water channel in God's hands, as the Proverbs say. And God turns the stream wherever he wants it to go. Yes, you have free agency and you're fully responsible for your actions. Your river is flowing freely. But God is the one that directs its course. And his sovereignty over the stream of your heart does not change the fact that it is the genuine stream of your heart. And we rejoice over this. Because we know that ultimately nothing good comes from us. Only sin comes from our hearts apart from God's grace. All goodness comes from God working in us by His grace, causing us to act as we do, turning our stream in the most pleasing direction to Him. And so He deserves all of the glory for it. Now this specifically in the Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit. I quoted to you earlier from Ezekiel 36 um, where uh, the prophet talks about us receiving new hearts. And the next verse, God says in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, literally comes to dwell in our hearts, to cause us to obey him, to cause us to fulfill our mission. He's equipped us with everything we need, and he comes into our lives to cause us to put it to use. The Holy Spirit is like the, the hands of God that turns the stream, He's the one that directs the course of our heart and our life. How does the Spirit do this in us? How does he work in us? Verse 21 says that he works in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. He does it through Jesus Christ, through the great shepherd. The Holy Spirit applies the saving work of Christ to you. He unites you to Jesus so that your old self can be put to death through Jesus' death and so that you can walk in in newness of life, through Jesus' life. It's through union in Christ that the Spirit causes us to be pleasing to God, that he works in us that which is pleasing to God. So in light of this, how should we, how should we live then? Well, as you've probably heard me quote many times from the pulpit, it's a, it's a famous quote, I think I don't know exactly who it comes from, someone famous. Our mode of operation is simple. We are called to act as if the mission that God's given us to please Him fully depends on us. We act as if the mission fully depends on us, but at the same time, we know that it fully depends on Him. We act as if it fully depends on us, but at the same time, we know that it is Him working in us that which is pleasing to His sight. So we are divinely equipped for our mission, both in the equipment that we've received, new hearts, spiritual armor, an amazing team, and in the Holy Spirit causing us to put those things to use. What that means for you, brothers and sisters, is that no matter how hard your struggle is right now, that no matter how deeply entrenched your sin of lust is, or your anxiety is, or your fear of man is, or your selfishness, or your impatience, or your lack of discipline, no matter how entrenched those things are in your life, The Bible says that those things can be overcome in Christ. God has equipped you with everything you need to please him. Every single one of those things can be defeated. And in a sense, they already have been through Christ. This also means that no matter how discouraged you can be, you can be encouraged because you know that God has fully equipped you to do all that is pleasing to you. It means that no matter how many times you've been hurt by people close to you, you can continue to be open and lovingly pour into others. It means that no matter what the consequences are of obedience in this life, that you can be faithful. No matter how scared you are to share the gospel, you can speak boldly and open your mouth. No matter how thick the darkness is in the world, you can crush it with the light. You have all the equipment that you need fully equipped in God, and His Spirit works in you to put it to use and to accomplish your mission. You are more empowered in Christ than you can possibly begin to imagine. And this full ability to accomplish the greatest mission of all is all from God, our great equipper. And so he rightly deserves all the credit and praise and honor for this work. As the author says in verse 21, to God be glory forever and ever. Amen. So to conclude, in verse 22, the author says, I appeal to you, brothers, Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So he he concludes with some greetings, but he also says to bear with my word of exhortation. And in telling them to do this, he appeals to the shortness of the writing. Now, we've been in this book since February 2nd. I went back and looked at the first sermon that we have from Hebrews, February 2nd. It may not seem short to us, but if you were to read Hebrews out loud, it would only take about an hour to, uh, to, to read it. Um, we've been commanded many things in this short word, in this word of exhortation. Um, in chapter 13 alone, we've been commanded to love our siblings, to show hospitality to strangers, to remember sufferers, to honor marriage, to be content. To hold fast to sound teaching, to not neglect to do good, and to obey your leaders. And then throughout the book, we've heard numerous warnings, some very terrifying warnings, not to fall away from the faith, not to turn away from Christ. And throughout the book, we've seen the supremacy of Christ as our great high priest. We've seen that from him, through his work, we've received an unshakable kingdom. And as a result, we've been called to live for him, to offer an acceptable sacrifice Your only mission in life is to please God. And all these commands fall within that mission. And so in closing his book, the author wishes God's complete equipping for his readers. He wishes God's complete equipping for their work and for our work today, which is exactly what God does for you. God equips you with everything you need to please him. Absolutely everything you need to please him. And so feel deeply empowered to do all that he calls you to do. Feel empowered because you can do it in Christ. You have the power to carry this out in Christ, and so go do it. This means that we have no excuse to not carry out the mission that God set forth for us. Imagine if, um, imagine if after Batman got all of his gear, instead of going out and saving Gotham, he sat around in his batsuit and scrolled Instagram all day on his couch, taking posting pictures of himself. Who wants to to watch that movie? That's not an exciting movie to watch. But in thinking about that, I worry that that might be the movie of so many of our lives. Ask yourself this question as we close out the sermon today. Is that the movie of your life? Are you sitting around in your divine equipment? Or are you out fulfilling the team mission that God's called you to? If not, then that's a shame. That's a waste of a life. That's a boring life, I would say. Nobody wants to watch that movie. You don't want to watch that movie. Other people don't want to watch that movie. God certainly doesn't want to watch that. It's offensive and grievous to him. But when we do take the equipment that God's given us, and when we go out and we fulfill the mission that he's called us to, when we live together to please him alone, and we put our divine equipment into action, that is so glorious. That is so glorious. That's an Eternal Academy Award winner. That's a movie that the angels crowd around to watch. And so may I pray that God's favor would be upon us as we strive to that end. And we'll close the sermon with the same words that the author brings his letter to a close to and bring this series to a close to. Verse 25, the author rightly says, Grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of us. Let's pray. Lord, it is only by your grace that we have received the equipment we have and that you by your spirit work in us that which is pleasing to your sight. Lord, you are the great equipper. You're the God of peace who raised our great shepherd from the dead and raised us up with Christ. And you're also the God who sacrificed yourself, who shed your blood for us that we might be forgiven of our sins. Lord, you as the God of peace has equipped us with everything that we need to carry out this mission. You've given us new hearts. You've given us spiritual armor. You've given us an amazing team. And by your Holy Spirit, you work in us that which is pleasing to your sight. You cause us and you move us, directing the stream of our heart to put into use, to put to action the incredible equipment that you've blessed us with in Christ. We ask, Lord, that we would be faithful to carrying this out that we would live lives for your entertainment, for your pleasure, for your glory, taking all of the incredible blessings that you've given us, everything we heard about today and infinitely more, and living for your glory alone. Lord, please cause us to take to heart all that we've heard from this incredible book, to see all of the commands that you have spelled out for us as well as the warnings, and to feel empowered today by your Spirit to live those things out, to recognize that you have given us everything we need and that you cause us by your Spirit to rightly use it. Do this for your own magnification and glory in us. You deserve all the glory for all of this. And we pray that you would cause this to happen for our sakes and for the sake of the world around us. It's in your name. Amen.